bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's potter's field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by Historic Palmyra, located in Palmyra, New York. Five museums, one destination in the heart of Erie Canal country. And the Sodus Bay Lighthouse Museum and Historical Society, located in Sodus Bay, New York, on the shores of Lake Ontario. And one more quick thing before we begin. We've been asked, how can you listen to previous episodes of the Talking Heart Island podcast? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. The Ellis Island Immigrant Hospital saved tens of thousands of lives as immigrants flooded onto Ellis Island nearly a century ago. It was here that the germs of the world converged. The hospital was both welcoming and foreboding to those too sick to enter the country. Those nursed to health were allowed to become citizens. Those deemed feeble of body or mind were deported. And many of those who died were penniless and buried on Hard Island. Our very special guest today is Lori Conway. She's an American author, independent producer, and filmmaker. Her work has received the Peabody, DuPont, and Cable Ace Awards. She was a former Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. And her book and film, Forgotten Ellis Island, The Extraordinary Story of America's Immigrant Hospital, will be discussed here today. And Lori Conway, how are you today? Very well. Happy summer. Nice to be here. Oh, it's beautiful. You're calling from where now? I'm in Boston. You're in Boston. Uh, you know, most of the people listening today are going to be from New York, mm -hmm. many from the New York City area. But uh, and we're hoping that uh, 
you know, our uh, content will spread, of course, to, uh, across the country. Um, the first thing that came to mind, and I have to tell you, when I was doing the research on my book, mm-hmm. I looked at Ellis Island and I could not draw a, a connection between Ellis Island and Hart Island until I came to your book and film. Right. And there it was in yep. plain sight. Yes. What drew you to this story? In 1998, I was looking through the New York Times magazine that I do every Sunday and happened to see a story called The Other Ellis Island. And it piqued my interest because my grandfather came through, all my grandparents came through, and I was curious and began reading this short but compelling story about these 22 buildings that were literally uh, crumbling and falling into the New York Harbor. And they were previously the buildings of a massive medical facility that the federal government built um, beginning in 1907 when it opened. And I was absolutely captivated by the fact that there was this other narrative about this place that we think we know everything about, Ellis Island. So the next day I was on the phone with Frank Mills, this lovely uh, former assistant superintendent uh, at Ellis, asking if anybody had ever done a film or book about it. And he said, no. And he invited me down. And within two weeks, I was there. And I was, again, captivated is the word, because it was a remarkable place. Uh, It's the if walls could talk um, that comes to mind. As I was walking down this, it literally is a 500-foot-long hallway that acts as a spine to many of the buildings and many of the wards of this massive hospital. All I could think of was that tens of thousands of people, sick, diseased, scared, walked down this hallway in a strange country, so very, very far away from their home. And I thought, I have to tell these stories. I have to find these stories first, and I have to tell them somehow. So that was the beginning of what became a 10-year-long, well, my my son called it a saga, (laughs) but I, (laughs) my husband called it a mission, (laughs) and I called it a film and book. I just couldn't let it go. Quick question. If the hospital wasn't built until 1907, Ellis Island began receiving uh, immigrants, uh, what, 10, 15 years earlier than that, didn't it? Right. Uh, it, what, what, did, what did they do up until the point where they actually built the hospital with people who were sick? Uh, what was happening was they had a, a gen, like a general hospital, a, you know, a quarantine center, and mm-hmm. they knew enough to contain people with diseases that they didn't have antibiotics to fight against. So they had a, you know, an infirmary, they had a general hospital. But this massive contagious disease hospital that was built came afterwards, and it included a psychopathic ward. It included a big maternity ward um, because 350 babies were born there. It included a morgue where 3,500 people were placed temporarily until some of them were buried on Hard Island. So it was this massive facility that became a place uh, that really not only saved tens of thousands of people's lives, 
by healing them and allowing them to come on and go into the country as healthy citizens. Uh, but it also prevented epidemics from uh, spreading across the country. So uh, not one epidemic was ever um, uh, related to an immigrant or immigrant group that came through Ellis. And that was so important because remember cholera, typhus, typhoid, all of these nasty diseases that we didn't have drugs to fight against had crossed the Atlantic, the, you know, the oceans. And so they really needed to have some facility for people who were sick with these diseases to not enter the general and not enter the general population. Right. The, um, can you tell us a little bit about the history of Ellis Island? I mean, for instance, did you learn what Ellis Island was used for prior to the uh, immigrants coming in? Well, it was, you know, one island. And eventually, because the hospital that started as a small general hospital and an infirmary, like I said, prior in the early 1900s, um, where that was the first hospital. And then eventually they built two additional islands. But before that, Ellis was, you know, a place where people fished and uh, a gentleman by the name of Ellis owned it. And it was bought eventually by uh, the state of New York, I think it was, or the city of New York. Uh, and then the f federal government took it over uh, because uh, prior to that, immigrants were coming through Castle Garden, which is at the base of Bat uh, Battery Park there. Uh, it's the building where you go to get a ticket to take the ferry to the statue now or to Ellis Island. So that Castle Garden up until 1892 was the main immigration facility. But, you know, thousands of more people were coming every day and it just simply could not process the numbers of people who were coming through. So they began this big building of a major they called it the Great Hall, which is now the main museum on Ellis. Uh, and it became a federal um, government immigration inspection port of entry. And it was the largest one in the country. And 40% of us today can trace our roots to the immigrants who came through there. About 12 million did. Amazing. When, when you say that, well, Ellis Island at one point was just an island but that they built additional islands. So in other words, the other islands were man-made, correct? Yes. And so what they were doing is they were recognizing that they had a problem on their hands. Many of the people who were on the ships, as one of my uh, medical advisors said to me, if they weren't sick when they left Hamburg or wherever their port of departure was, often they could be sick by the time they landed in New York because the steamship quarters where they were staying, and it was just the cheapest ticket that an immigrant could buy, um, it was called steerage class. And it was, you know, below third class. And these were in the bellies of the ship, the balls of the ship, very crowded quarters, no fresh water, no fresh food was, you know, was given to them, was available. They couldn't even buy it. They had to bring whatever they were going to eat and drink on board. I imagine there was bartering going on. But imagine being in the bowels of that stinky environment for up to three weeks as you were crossing the ocean. 
with your family. And so the germs were just, you know, it was a floating Petri dish of, of germs. And so that became a real problem as doctors were getting on these ships. Uh, they were putting up more and more of the yellow flag that said TB or typhus or TB, something was amiss on the ship and that it had to remain, the people had to stay on there until they took the sick people off. And this was happening over and over and over as more and more people were landing in New York City. So they realized we have to expand this small general hospital, this infirmary that we have into a major medical facility. Congress passed the money for them to do so. But I found a letter in my you know, many years search for actual documents because I'm the first to write a book about this place. So everything was primary sourced and researched. I found a letter that said, we wish to build a, a, a massive medical complex adjacent to Ellis Island, but first we have to create an island on which to build it. And this was part of the request for funding from Congress, uh, you know, documentation that was submitted to the federal, to Congress and the federal government. So what they did was they had the fill from the New York subway tunnels brought out on barges and they started to pile it up. And, you know, they were dredging the water. They started to build one island, connected it with a bridge. Some of the doctors and nurses would swim in between the islands in their downtime because there were dormitories also uh, both on Ellis and within the hospital complex for the medical staff to stay. Not all of them did, but some of them did. And, uh, and then they realized that, you know, they had to keep expanding this facility. So they built another island with more fill. And that's the reason that they couldn't bury people on Ellis because, you know, fill is fill. It's, you cannot actually, you know, bodies would have been floating off of the island. Um, they would not have stayed within a secure, you know, piece of soil and property and, and they would not have been built, you know, they would not have been buried sufficiently, uh, deep enough, you know, when you're building on basically fill and water. So that's why many of the, um, I found other bills for hearses, you know, horse-drawn hearses that were charging the families of loved ones who had died, you know, $10 to transport a casket to either Hart Island um, or they would have trans if they had more money. And many of the immigrants were dirt poor, literally dirt poor. Mm -hmm. They would have taken them uh, to Hart Island if they were very poor. And then if they had some more money, they would have taken them out to, there were a number of cemeteries, like in Queens, I visited one, and there were a number of immigrants laid to rest there. Um, because, again, when you have two islands that are built with, you know, fill, you have to find another place for them to be buried. When you had that number of people dying, so, and also there was concern about the germs and contamination, but they did have a fascinating autopsy amphitheater at the, uh, on, within the hospital complex. And that in and of itself took your breath away when you walked in there and you saw the tables, you saw the refrigerated, uh, uh, you know, pallets where they would have put the bodies and, they had doctors from all over the world who were visiting the New York City hospitals coming out to Ellis to view these autopsies 
And so much was learned from the immigrants who died about germs and about science and about contagious diseases and how to treat them. And also just what kind of drugs, you know, they were, they were trying to figure out how do we, how do we, how do we attenuate these virulent diseases? Um, and so within this autopsy amphitheater, you had, you know, at any given day, maybe 10, 20, 30 doctors and nurses watching these autopsies. And again, as you sat there, as, as I sat there, just looking around and it was, it was a, a stunning experience. And then when we filmed in there, you know, it was, it was a remarkable thing to imagine the experiences these doctored had, doctors had in the, and the sadness that was in that room as well for those families who were losing these loved ones. And sometimes, as I found in this one, uh, there were very few patient hospital records. They've been misplaced or they've been destroyed. I tried for a couple of years filing Freedom of Information Acts to secure them. I had a couple of false leads as to where they might have been. And I think they do exist somewhere, but during the renovation of Ellis, um, you know, a number of boxes, like hundreds of boxes, cubic feet, hundreds of cu millions probably of cubic feet of material were probably stored in medical, uh, federal facilities around the country. And we just don't know where they are. I can't believe that, you know, all of those records of thousands of patients would have been destroyed. I, Somehow can't get my head around that. Uh, but I do, it did occasionally at the National Archives in Bethesda, where I did a lot of my research, or the Library of Congress, or out at Ellis itself, or U.S. Public Health Service Archives in Rockville, Maryland. I would come across a hospital record. And I came across one that absolutely captivated me for, for a couple of years. And I kept wanting to put a face to this medical record because it was of a young guy, 19 years old, who had what appeared to be more, many more items um, than most of the immigrants had in terms of he had some money, he had a very nice suit, he had a bowler hat, he had a lovely suitcase, he had his rosary, which many of the immigrants had, but um, he had a little bit too much money. And I thought, I don't think this this young man was an immigrant. I think he was somebody else. And and why did he end up in in on Ellis? And what well, turns out, according to his medical record that I found with him, but no picture of him, he was a Australian who was going to Indiana for a an internship of a sort uh, with a manufacturing company. He had lined up in advance and he was going to live with the family and learn the business. Uh, but he got scarlet fever while he was on the ship. And so it turns out that I, through a um, genealogist I hired, his name was Orman McDermott. And I contacted his family in Australia once this uh, genealogist found his family. And they were so thrilled to hear from me because they never knew what kind of treatment he was given. And here I was able to share with them his medical records. And it was truly one of those pinch me experiences when I first called and talked to them. Um, and then I interviewed his niece, his grandniece. Um, and, you know, we both shared some tears because, again, there was such sadness around 
this hospital because so many people did die out there. But one thing I could tell her, and she could see from this medical record, that Orman was well cared for. His nurse had kept a narrative diary of his, of the care she gave him. And it, it was so poignant. And I think that made everybody in his family feel like, at last, we know the story of Orman McDermott. We know the story of his, the loving care and compassion that was shown to him as he was all alone in the Ellis Island Hospital, not at his internship in Indiana, so far from his family. And the symptoms he had were terrible. And he was delirious. He had a high fever. You know, it, it was a, probably a very terrible experience for him. But at least we know that he was given loving, compassionate care from his nurse. And he died at 1230 in the, uh, in the morning. But he didn't die alone. She was with him. And that made his family feel so much better. Uh, Lori, are there still people alive today who went through Ellis Island? There's a few. Um, you know, the ones that came much later. But the numbers are dwindling for sure. And the ones who were in the hospital, because so many of the kids, the, the patients were children because they had, you know, low immune systems and, you know, they weren't being given the kinds of supplements and vitamins that kids are given today. And so many of them got these childhood diseases like measles and mumps and diphtheria, which when you didn't have anything to treat those those diseases with, they could be virulent. Um, so many of those patients, I'd say almost all of them at this point, are deceased or they're in their low 100s. <laughs> and and I, I know the people I interviewed are all gone, sadly. And I interviewed a number. I, I of believe patients. I believe one of them is on the uh, your movie trailer, which I believe we're yes. going to play right at the end of our. Oh, discussion. good, great, good. Yep. Yeah, that that'll be that'll be very special. Yes, um, that's John Henry Wilberding. Yes, he was a okay. uh, a young nine year old when he was hospitalized with his twin brother with the measles. Um, I I just want to return to one uh, thing that we had talked about earlier: the actual sure. building of the islands, mm -hmm. and the building of the medical complex itself. Yeah. How long did that all take? I mean, how long does it take to build an island? And how long do you know the period of time where they, you know, greatly it, it, expanded yeah, the medical it, complex it, itself? It was, a, you know, it's beginning in 1902, and it went right through up until about 1905, 1906, 1907. It, they were adding on, adding on, adding on. Um, and that's why it ended up to be you know, this multi-million dollar investment by the federal government in protecting the citizenry of the United States from these diseases. But also, I would argue that they were expressing compassionate care for these immigrants who were landing sick and diseased and scared. Um, you know, it was both a place that contained people with these diseases for the good of the general population, but it was also a place, as John Henry Wilberding, the immigrant who was in the hospital said, that rescued you, it healed you. That's not to say it was a perfect place, it was not. There was dark history that I found as well, like all history <laughs> has, has both good and good and, and bad. 
um, uh, when you begin to dig into it. And, and that was that nativist impulses, those who felt that the immigrants were going to, uh, you know, destroy the population or certainly pollute the general population uh, with their different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, remember, as the Southern Europeans became more popular, coming in in, a, in greater numbers, and the Northern Europeans, who were the preferred Europeans from Scandinavia, the blonde haired, the blue eyes, were being replaced by the darker skinned Italians, the, you know, the, the Greeks, the, uh, you know, Eastern Europeans, the gypsies, uh, the Hungarians, the Slavs, the Slovaks, the Poles. There was a pushback. And you could see occasionally the deportation rate, which was still very low. But it would spike as and more Jews were coming through. Uh, there was a pushback on the Jews and the Southern Italians, especially uh, because there was concern that they were going to, you know, take jobs from Americans. This is a very familiar narrative that you hear about uh, immigrants every decade or so. Right? The, the debate rages today. Uh, there was a saying at the time, at the early 20th century, that America beckons but Americans repel. And I'd say that was true for today as well. Uh, and so you had nativist impulses playing out on the island. And in terms of eugenics, which was a pseudoscience, it was, uh, it was false. It was not a fake, if you'd say fake science today, yet it was very popular. And some of the findings of eugenics was being aired in front of Congress. And so you know, there was concern that um, this immigrant population was going to really negatively affect the American population. And so, you know, there were laws eventually put in place that would shut the gates and that were wide open at the turn of the 20th century. We didn't have any immigrant laws at that time. We needed the immigrants to work in the factories. So there were no laws really until 1924 when the quotas kicked in. Um, and that was a result of uh, the nativists influencing Congress, and they developed laws against especially, you know, certain ethnic groups. Um, so, you know, you had these negative impulses by members of Congress and uh, cut back and eventually really was the reason that Ellis Island closed as a port of entry because it was now a trickle as opposed to a tsunami of immigrants coming through. But by the 1930s, right. it was just a trickle. Well, uh, Lori, I, I want to thank you. Uh, by the way, our time has expired. You know, it's one of our uh, dilemmas. We either do this for 25 minutes or for about three hours and 25 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. And, and it, just, it, just, it just flies by. It and did. I want to thank you because the information was uh, fantastic. Oh, great. Uh, I'm happy again, to do it. Again, people re remember her book and film, Forgotten Ellis Island, The Extraordinary Story of America's Immigrant Hospital. Yes, I and, just, uh, I, just uh, put it on, I just put it on Amazon Prime Video, and it, the book, the paperback, is also available on Amazon. Okay. Well, there you go. So, again, thank you very much. And, and just as a reminder, we're going to follow this. Uh, interview with a one-minute clip uh, from the film with an extraordinary interview with one of the Ellis Island uh, immigrants. And so again, thank you, Lori. My pleasure. Thank you. To those who went through it, 
It was one of the most precious gifts that they were ever given. Because when you were sick, you can't do anything about it. But here was a place that rescued you. And in a strange place, thousands of miles away. So people can never say that America isn't a place of compassion and understanding because they certainly proved it there. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website located at www.michaeltkeen.com and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, Use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. (music) 